Joseph. You guys can be seated. I'd like to welcome you this morning. It's really good to see everybody. Come on, Miss Lynn. I'm sorry. You can make your way. Joe, this is worth more than I am. So I'm going to let you grab that. Well, welcome. I'd like to welcome all of you that are here and welcome to those of you who are um, viewing via Facebook. We're glad that you're able to do that. Um, I, uh, one of the things that I've learned through the whole COVID deal uh, was how much I took for granted the physical gathering with other believers. And so I'm incredibly grateful every time we get to gather in person and, and look in one another's eyes because that is the way that God intended us to gather together is, is to look into one another's eyes. And so um, I, I have, I, I know there are a lot of legitimate reasons not to gather today, and, um, but I am thankful for those that are here and, um, and, and for those of you that are tuned in. All right, so Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning is where we will be. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And if you need, does anybody need an Exodus journal? Anybody doesn't have one? Mr. Dolan has a couple right back there in the back. If you don't have one, just lift your hand and he'll, he'll get you squared away. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. And so I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity again to gather in your name. God, thank you for these words. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would be reminded of the power that is in your word. I pray that we would be reminded of the sufficiency of the words that you have given us, that they do provide for us everything we need for life and godliness. They are able to rebuke and to teach and to convict, to edify and to encourage. And so, Lord, I pray that this story's familiarity wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't cause us any indifference or to come with 
any sort of preconceived idea. I pray that we would be open and to listen to your living word. I pray that you would move among us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you remember last week, we finished up chapter 2, and there was a little break in the narrative. And that break in the narrative was... was uh, the author's intent in that was to let us know that uh, the king of Egypt had died. But er, uh, during that time of, of this particular king of Egypt, this particular Pharaoh, God's people had been under deep, deep oppression for many, many years. Well, that king had died, but even in that governmental uh, change, it still didn't stop the fact or, or cease the oppression that God's people were experiencing. And, and so he singles this little, uh, we single this little section out so that we could emphasize the fact that, yes, God's people are in oppression for a, um, a, a lot of years, many, many years, but also God's people continued to cry out to God over and over and over, and there came a time that God heard their cry, that he saw his people, that he remembered his covenant, and then the end of verse 25 says, and, and God knew. And so now what we see is, is this remembering of God's covenant throughout the book of Exodus. And remember, that word remember doesn't mean that God, he, he had to recollect the covenant. It means now it's time for the application of the covenant. And, and so the time of salvation is here. The day of salvation has come for God's people. And so uh, just to remind you again, just a little practical nugget from last week is sometimes God's timetable requires many, many prayers. And that's right and that's necessary and those those were good. But that was last week's sermon. If you didn't get to hear it, I um, encourage you to go back and listen to that. And so as we pick up in chapter 3, chapters 3 and 4 are an extended dialogue with God that are built around three questions, all right? And those questions are this. The first question that we'll deal with today is in Exodus 3, 1 through 12, and it's, who am I? Moses asking these questions, who am I? All right? Second question dealt with in verse 12 through 22 will be next week, who are you? All right? So Moses asking God, who am I? Moses asking God, who are you? And then in chapter four, it's Moses asking God, what if they don't believe? And so we'll be in this specific conversation for a few weeks. And, but this morning, Lord willing, we're going to try to answer the question, the first question that Moses asked in who am I? Now, there's going to be many, many rabbit trails that we could go down. Um, community groups and equipped groups, if you're not a part of those and, and you would like information on those, just just ask me afterwards and I'll point you in the right direction. But those are a really good place to, to sort of ask some of these secondary or peripheral questions or rabbit trails you can kind of go down. Um, but for all purposes this morning, um, I'm going to try to answer the question that I believe this text wants us to answer. And it's Moses' question of, of who am I? All right, so let's dive in. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so Moses' identification with his own ethnic people was now so strong that he was willing to serve in a specific occupation. You might not see that directly. It's because it's not there directly. But if you turn a couple pages back in Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, you'll see what I mean. Picking up in verse 33, this is the dialogue with Joseph and his father Jacob. As Joseph's family's coming back or, or coming to Egypt because of the famine, he's having a dialogue with his family. Joseph is about like what lingo to use in regards to what their occupation is. Now watch what happens. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, 
Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. Well, what's another way to say keeper of livestock? Somebody say it. Well, y'all with me. Y'all should be awake. It's 11 o'clock, right? Shepherd, right? So the, evidently there's something in the, in the Egyptian culture that they, they hate. They literally hate the word shepherd or really look down on people who call themselves shepherds. So keepers of livestock was sufficient. But listen to what it goes on to say. Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order, watch what happens here, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. And so one thing that's going to have to happen if they're going to dwell in the land of Goshen is they're going to have to be okay with calling themselves keepers of livestock versus what? Shepherds. It's important. And then he tells us why. Four, because of this, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Not only is Moses now a shepherd, which identifies with his people and makes a clear distinction from his Egyptian heritage um, also, but he also doesn't appear to have a flock of his own, right? He's shepherding his father-in-law's flock. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying. He doesn't have his own flock. He hasn't made his own living. He's not this self-made man. But think of how he began. Think of, you know, the thoughts that must roll through Moses' mind as he just evaluates his life. He's about 80 years old at this point, And he was once the prince of Egypt. He once had a deep passion for justice, stepped in, makes a mistake, kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. The next day, he approaches two of his own people who are fighting, steps in, um, interjects with the one that is, is um, in the wrong, that guy lets him know that his own people don't accept him, and so now he's on the run. He's, he's this washed-out exile in the Sinai wilderness, and he finds himself on this particular occasion um, shepherding his, his father-in-law's flock. And, and that phrase, the west side of the wilderness, that's literally like what we would think, maybe like the backside of Akron, the backside of Duncanville. Like it's the backside of the Sinai wilderness. So he is deep in the wilderness, which shepherds would do. I mean, they would lead their, their, their flock to the greenest grass or to the best water or to keep them safe. But that's where Moses is. What a contrast from his days as an Egyptian prince. Now he's, in a sense, he's a household worker. He's a household worker. He's just, he's just Moses. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is, is not burned. Now, a couple things about the Sinai wilderness. When we think of wilderness, well, I do. I think of wilderness. I think of trees. I think of thickets. I think of a lot of greenery, right? But, well, that's not the wilderness that... Moses was in. Moses was in a desert wilderness. And so um, God's options of what to appear in are um, thorn bushes and rocks. And there weren't many thorn bushes. All right. And so this Hebrew word bush is thorn bush. Literally like the most common, ugly, basic thing that could grow in the desert in this wilderness is what it's talking about. I mean, this wasn't a hydrangea, this wasn't a rose bush, this wasn't an azalea, this wasn't something that we would typically think would be something that God would appear in. But Moses doesn't know it's God yet. He's, he's just doing his thing in this unlikely place, in this unlikely time, and in a very unlikely way, 
he looks over and he sees that this, this briar bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's a phenomenon. Like it, it defies logic. It defies the laws of nature. And so he's like, I mean, I would assume any good shepherd or interested human being that's curious would go, I want to go check that out. And so as he approaches that and he walks over, we see in verse 4 that not only is it a bush that's on fire that doesn't consume, that's not consumed, it's also a bush that talks. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here, here I am. Now, God often does this, and what I mean by this is God often says the name of the person that he's calling or commissioning or teaching something about himself twice. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal for God to say Moses, Moses, but it made me think of other occasions in Scripture where God says Jacob, Jacob, or Joshua, Joshua, or Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon, or as Brandon pointed out between uh, the uh, second and third service, Saul, Saul. I mean, when God does that, every time he does that in Scripture, it's a time that he's commissioning or teaching that person something very specific about himself. But in, in the Hebrew culture, it's a term of endearment and passion. And so it would be the difference in me saying, hey, Clay, and me saying, Clay, Clay. Like in saying it twice, you, you, re you recognize that there's some passion there. But even with the passion, there's, there's this sense of endearment. There's this welcoming nature of it, which is odd considering the very next thing that is said in verse 5. Look at verse 5, 5 and 6. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so now we know for sure that the angel of the Lord, because that's a phrase that's used multiple times in the Old Testament. Many, many times it's used. And I don't have time to unpack this, but if you want to jot it down, I encourage you to study on your own. Most of the time, I, I, I personally believe, and many, many um, people who are way smarter than me believe this as well, but when, when, when these kind of... Um, experiences happen in the Old Testament that it's a pre-incarnate visit from Jesus, which means before Jesus was incarnate, before he came, became flesh, this was the time that Jesus came down and spoke to God's people. Sometimes it's not as clear that this is actually the Lord, but here we see this is the angel of Yahweh, but then he goes on to say in verse 6, I am God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we know that this is an interaction with God, which would help us understand a little bit more about why in verse 5, the first thing that he says is, Do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And then to hear at the end of that, Moses hides his face. What is holy ground? What is holy and that's a fair question, right? It's a vitally important question. Holy means distinct, different, or other. Distinct, different, or other. So, Moses, take your sandals off your feet. The ground that you are on is different. It's distinct. It's other. But before this experience with this briar bush on fire, 
and God speaking out of it, that ground was not different. It was not distinct. It was not other. It was just dirt. So what is it about this, this area now that makes it different, distinct, and other? Well, it's because of the presence of the one who is there, who is defined by this Bible as the holy God who is different, distinct, and other. Different, distinct, and other than who? Everything else. Particularly in this context, Moses. And me and you. And so this word holy is, is vitally important in what it teaches, teaches us about God and that he is, he is not like us. He's glorious and he's majestic. And up until now, Moses has encountered talking with a briar bush, but now he's told that this is God and his immediate reaction is to hide his face. Is this the right response? Is this the right response? I know the Sunday school answer is what? Yes. But why is it? We're going to take a little pit stop here and define a word. Because what we see um, in, in this section, I think in quite a few different ways, is we see an attribute of God that I think we have to have nailed down in order for us to walk in a way that brings Him glory and to truly understand the gospel. And, and so the theological word is transcendence. But the simple definition and the simple way to say it is that God is above us. And so here's the definition of transcendence. That God is separate from and independent of nature and humanity. God is not simply attached to or involved in his creation. He is also superior to it in every single way. God is above our thoughts. God is above our ability to describe him. He is above our righteousness. He is above time. He is above us in every single way. Our, our family was reading through Genesis 1 a couple of nights ago, and we got to verse 1. The, what's the first verse of the Bible? Anybody know? In the beginning, God, in my opinion, is the most profound verse in the entire Bible because it lets us know that the transcendent one, the one who is above us, has always been. And so one of the deepest questions that can be asked comes from the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Before anything else, there was who? God. He's transcendent. He's above us. And his transcendence in Scripture often speaks to his control and his authority as the creator over his creatures. And I want you to see if you see this with me. In, in this section, I'm, I want you to look at verse 5, and we're going to kind of skim through this, but in verse 5, you hear it in this language when he says, do not come near, because God is distinct and God is different, God is holy. He defines it as holy ground. In verse 6, we see that Moses is afraid to look at God, and that's a right response. Why? Because God is holy, he's distinct, he's different, he's other than Moses. In verse 8, we start seeing some, some language that, that shows God's certainty in what he's doing. I've come to bring them up. He's sure. Uh, verse 10, I will send you. Verse 12, I, I will be with you. Verse 12, this shall be a sign. Verse 12, you shall serve. Who can talk this way? Who can talk this way? Do we talk this way? Yeah. One thing this last season has taught me is um, how much I'm not in control. March the 1st, I had a calendar full of stuff like many of you, right? I mean, we had plans. We had games to go to. We had, uh, I mean, 
graduations to go to. We had vacations planned. We had VBS planned. I mean, from church calendar to personal calendar to everything. I mean, we had these plans. If you'd have asked me on March 1st, hey, tell me about your calendar. I would have said it this way. Well, we will have this. We will do this. And this will happen and we'll go here. And I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But one thing that this season has taught me personally is, is not to just presume on things that will happen and to know and understand that we're not transcendent in the way that God is transcendent. Therefore, we can't use the same language that he uses in regards to events, particularly future events. So God is above us and he's, he's transcendent. And he, we see that plainly in this text in the way that Moses responds to him and in the language that God uses in, in the way that he speaks to Moses. But God is not only above us, that's not the only thing we see here. We also see that God is among us. And so that theological term is eminence. And here's the definition. Zach, if you'll leave it up a little longer this time. I got chastised after the last service. Yeah. Eminence. Divine eminence is the description of his kingly control and authority because he rules over creation. He is present throughout the whole creation, especially to his people in a personal in covenantal way. And so God is above us, but he's also among us. And friends, I don't think we can appreciate, I don't know if this is a word, his amongness until we appreciate his aboveness. Because if we don't see him as transcendent and who he actually is as holy, as different, as other, as distinct, they were not going to think too highly of the fact that he's among us and that he's imminent. But the God of the Bible prays him is both. I want, you, I want to see if you see this with me in verses 7 through 9. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. We see that God is not just transcendent and that he knows all of these things. He, in his transcendence, he can still know all of these things. And in his transcendence, watch this, he can still hear these things. He can still see these things. And he can still know everything. And he can still be transcendent and not imminent. He can still be above us and not among us. But the key here is not just that he hears, not just that he sees but it's the fact that he's come down. Because what good would it be if the eminent, all-powerful God was just up there seeing, hearing, and knowing and not acting? I mean, what good would that be? What hope would that bring? What, what about the salvation that was supposed to happen? But God has, has come down. The one who is above us has become... a among us and God is not absent and in coming down God is in a sense rolled up his sleeves to enter into this story and enter into his people's mess showing us his his eminence and the fact that he's among us and friends this is a pattern throughout scripture I mean even before sin before sin what did God do he came down to Adam and Eve after sin what's the first thing that God does he comes down to Adam and Eve 
There's multiple cases throughout the Old Testament, like the one today, where God comes down to his people. And then in the ultimate way, how does God come down? Jesus. Emmanuel. God incarnate. God with us. The transcendent one puts on flesh and bones. And see how vitally important it is, even of your understanding of Jesus, that if you don't see Jesus as the Bible sees Jesus, as the imminent, I'm sorry, as the transcendent God of the universe, the reason all things exist came through the word of his power, all things are sustained by the word of Jesus' power, this transcendent Jesus came down to live in human flesh. And essentially be rejected and killed by his creation so that he may save some. But what do we await as the church? Who's coming down again? Jesus. The new heaven and the new earth. Don't miss the language. What's it going to do? Come down. So I think that there can be a massive problem in our understanding of God... If, if we think of him as wholly transcendent, like completely transcendent, like, like that's the only way we think of God, and I think that's rampant in the church, to be honest with you. And that's called deism. Deism is the belief that there is a God, he is powerful, he's transcendent, but he's way, 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 way out there, and he doesn't interact with his creation or his people at all. I think many Christians, even though we would um, recognize God's transcendence and we would salute the fact that he's among us or at least he's come down a time or two, we live our lives in a way that basically we're functional deists, meaning that he's not involved. I mean, he's there, but he's there and this is my life and I do what I want to do and I live how I want to live. I think a lot of Christians believe in God, but... He doesn't affect their lives. As far as they're concerned, he could see or not see, hear or not hear, care or not care, come down or not come down. He just doesn't affect their lives. And so that's a misunderstanding of who the God of the Bible is. It's right in the fact that he's transcendent, but it's wrong in the fact that he's not involved and desires to be involved and is involved in the intricate details of the lives of his people. The other end of that pendulum is God being wholly imminent. You see this a lot in Eastern religions, a lot in mysticism, meaning this, God is everything and God is in everything. And so when you go home, Titus goes home and plays with his bearded dragon, the bearded dragon is God. We got eight chickens, God's in those chickens. We got two dogs, God's in those dogs. We got some trees in our yard, God's in the trees. So we can grab a chicken and grab a lizard and go touch a tree and we're just all God together. a misunderstanding of who God is. And, and I honestly believe that the reason that a lot of Westerners, and that's us, by the way, a lot of Westerners are so attracted to some of these Eastern religions where God, like the, God is wholly imminent and he's in everything is because they've been raised in a Christian culture that speaks of God as transcendent, and rightfully so, but, but only, only transcendent. And they desire in themselves a deep relationship and, and a knowledge of God that they feel like is unattainable because God is so transcendent. And he is so transcendent. But we see the God of the Bible that he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's above us, but he's also among us. Amen. And so verse 10, let's jump back in. That was a pit stop. 
And so God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What in the world do you think Moses thinks when he hears that? Seriously. I mean, he might have thought a second ago, man, it is like I am shocked by the fact that God met me on the backside of the wilderness. I'm shocked by the fact that God met me in a briar bush. Like, again, he didn't have many options in the desert, briar bush or rock, okay? But he chose a briar bush. Uh, I'm shocked by that, but I'm, I'm more shocked by the fact that God would think, like, so in, in Moses' mind, what's most unlikely about this whole scenario is not the burning briar bush that's not being consumed. It's not the fact that God met with him. It's the fact that God would ask him. Like, Moses, in Moses' mind, he's the most unlikely candidate in this whole deal. I can't imagine the thoughts that went through Moses' mind. He probably, like all in that instant, he probably felt almost every emotion you could think of, anger, sadness, frustration, disappointment, because I wonder if he thought, or, 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 or I don't know if he verbalized it or whatever happened, but if he thought, I tried. Like, I tried. I tried to do that. I tried to do what I thought was right, and, and I failed. I tried to do what I thought was right the next day, and I failed. And so now I'm just a, I'm just a shepherd. I'm a, I'm a household servant. I work for my father-in-law. I'm a shepherd. I, got, I do have a lot of these pent-up desires, and, and I feel like there's this courage and this gift set inside of me that really can't ever be used again, but it's there. And, and God, I'm just not your dude. I'm just not the guy. The Egyptians and the Hebrews, they hate me. I can't. I've tried this and I've failed. Listen to what he says. See, so I'm not making this up. Listen to what he says in, in verse 11. This is Moses. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Underline that. Friends, jot that down if, if you're a note taker. Who am I? That's a vitally important question. It's important for us to evaluate that and, and be honest with ourselves and think through this question of who am I? And Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You see, Moses' identity is down to me. He's 80-something years old at this point. And, and Moses is going, I don't know who I am. At 80. At 80. But actually, he does know who he is. Because the question, who am I, is not necessarily Moses asking for himself to be defined. He feels like he knows who he is. And so Moses' sense of identity has boiled down to his ability, his strength, his understanding, his knowledge, his circumstances, his suffering, his pity party. And so his identity is wrapped up all in all that. And he's basically feeling like, I can't do it. And even like beyond that, I don't even trust me to do it. I think Moses had fallen victim to the same thing we all can by answering the question of who am I based on his own strength, his own standards, or the world's standards. Moses had tried this self-made life. And here he is at 80 going, hey God, I've taken myself too seriously before and it didn't work out. I've depended on me before and it didn't work out. Moses has been stripped of any idea of self-righteousness or self-strength 
or even, as he would define it at this point, self-worth. And friends, he's in a good place. He's in a good place. I know that feels contrary to the message of the world, and it's because it is. He's in a good place that he knows he can't depend on himself. He's in a good place that he knows that it's not going to be up to him because he's tried this before, and he just can't do it. For Moses, identity had become something that he achieves rather than something he receives. I mean, do you see the fragileness of that? See the fragileness in you building your own identity around what you can achieve and what you can do. I mean, why do you think depression rates are as high as they've ever been? Why do you think when COVID hit, suicide rates shot through the roof? Because we're people who define ourselves by what we're doing or what we're successful at or what we're strong at or what we're good at. And when COVID came and everybody was locked in their house, we couldn't do what? Anything. And so we're wrestling with what question? Who am I? Who am I? Because we think identity is something that we achieve rather than something that we receive. And for Moses, this questioning of his identity was prompted by a task that he felt unable to complete. I think many of us enjoy um, what we would call in North America the rat race. You know, some of us are driven by... um, competition and driven by success and driven by money and driven by others. Some of us shy away from that, but all of us can fall victim um, to this mentality and this mindset that our identity is wrapped up in the same things that Moses thought his identity was wrapped up in. And at this point, Moses is crushed under the weight of trying to be self-made. Not only is he not who he wants to be, he's not who he tried to be. Some of you haven't lived long enough to have experienced anything like that before. Some of you younger people are going, you're being told, hey, you can do anything you want to do. You can do anything you put your mind to. And and so, again, I'm not necessarily saying that that, that's a bad message. But it's not what Moses, I'm sorry, it's not what God tells Moses. Look at verse 12. So Moses says, who am I that I should do this task? And God says, he said, but I will be with you. Is that even an answer to the question? Think about it. Who am I? And the answer is, I will be with you. I mean, I would have thought God might have said something like, Moses, you're the ideal person. You've been brought up in the Egyptian court, in the royal household. You know the Egyptian culture. You know the Hebrew culture. You're the perfect guy for the job. Moses, you can do anything you put your mind to. You're strong. You're courageous. You have a lot of gifts. So you go do it, Moses. You can do it, in the water boy coach voice. I don't know how you're going to say that. Yeah. Coach voice, got you. Yeah. You can do it, Moses. But think of that. Think of that response. Who am I? And God's saying, I will be with you. You see, Moses does not need a higher self-esteem. Parents, I don't think our kids need higher self-esteem. I I mean, I just don't. I I mean, I don't think we as parents or as adults need a higher self-esteem. That's not what Moses needed. That's not what was going to make Moses successful. That's not how Moses was going to find his true identity. Instead of a higher self-esteem, what Moses needs, what we need, what our children need, is a greater sense of God's presence. 
mean, essentially, the answer to the question, who am I, is exactly what God says, but I will be with you. Which is another way to say, it's not about you. Like Moses, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about you. It's about God. God is the one who will make the difference. Moses is not. I mean, we're going to see Moses continue to struggle throughout this whole conversation. We're going to see Moses continue to struggle all the way to the end of his life. Where he, he doesn't even actually, spoiler alert, enter the promised land. Because of his own failure and his own sin and his own frailty. And so this just isn't about Moses. It's not about Moses' ability. It's not about his successes or his failures. It's about who the Lord is. And that's what Moses is to identify with. He's to identify with God. And so Moses can walk through anything because of what God says that he'll be with him. Moses can base his sense of self and his knowledge of God based on the fact that God says, I will be with you. Moses can have confidence. Moses has worth in knowing that God will be with him and that his achievements and his failures do not determine or change that status. In Romans chapter 8, it's not going to be on the screen, but in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's essentially dealing with the same thing that Moses is in understanding that the greatest hope for any of us is that God will, in fact, be with us. So we'll stop there for today. Joseph, you can come on. Um, and as Joseph gets ready, I, I just want to um, talk to those of you in the room that are believers and those of you listening that are believers. I, I want us to realize that all of us have a Moses story. I mean, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe, I mean, I know you're not Hebrew. I know you weren't raised in the Egyptian royal family. I get all that, for sure. But you have a Moses story in the fact that if, if you are the Lord's and you have placed your faith in Him, that, that, that He has chosen you, that He has saved you, that He loves you, that He's defined you. And the way that He's defined you is by saying, I'll be with you. He's made His dwelling inside of you. He's adopted you. The Bible uses such beautiful language to help us understand our new identity of what it means to be in Christ. That we're adopted into His family. That not only do we receive new names, we receive a new creation, that we're born again. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. I mean, you're literally new. Your identity is not wrapped up in what you can achieve. Your identity is wrapped up in what you have received from the Lord. And so there are some believers in this room that are being crushed under the weight of this self-made idea of who they are. I promise you, it won't lead you to joy. It won't lead you to true happiness. It won't lead you to contentment. And you will, at some point, by God's grace, see the frailty and the brittleness of that mindset. 
So, but the same God who saves highly unlikely people is the same God who sends highly unlikely people. And so we're a Moses story in every way that I've said, but we're also part of the Moses story in that those that God saves, God sends. That all of us have friends, have family members. We know people. There are people in this community that could, could be um, targeted as the Egyptians in this story. That they're in bondage, that they're enslaved, and without the hope of the gospel, without those, those that God calls and saves, those that he sends, if they don't go, then they're not rescued. You realize if Moses doesn't go, you could say, well, God would just use somebody else. Well, maybe so, but Moses is the guy. If Moses doesn't go, the people aren't saved. And so God's design in this age is for his spirit-filled people who understand what Christ has done and have placed their faith and trust in that. Now go knowing that he'll be with us. And we proclaim the good news of liberation and freedom through Jesus from the bondage and decay and punishment of sin itself. unbeliever I don't ever want to assume that everyone listening or in in our presence or listening online has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as I said a second ago not just in a sense like literally you're in bondage you're enslaved to sin you've inherited that from Adam there's no way out similar to the Israelites. There was no way for them to save themselves. There was no way for them to get out of that bondage on their own. Unless God intervenes, unless God comes down, unless the transcendent one comes down and intervenes. And that's exactly what he's done because there's actually a greater Moses. There's a greater Savior than Moses. And that greater Savior than Moses is Jesus himself. He's the only one that can rescue us out of the bondage of sin and slavery that we're under. He's the only one that can give us this new identity that, as Paul said, that nothing can separate us out of, that nothing can ever change. So I beg you, I beg you to surrender to Christ. And I'm I'm not even asking you what you've said in the past in regards to a prayer or raised your hand or been baptized. I'm just asking you like today, today, have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? Or are you just functioning as this person who, yeah, there's a God, he's up there, but like, I, there literally has no, no involvement in my everyday life. I mean, that's something to think about and to evaluate. And so if you'd like prayer or anything, we'd be glad to chat with you afterwards. So I'm going to pray and then we'll facilitate communion. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray in these final moments, Lord, that you would move among us. It's in Christ's name.